Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Cheryl Hemp and I am a member here of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us here this morning. And I would also like to offer an official welcome back to Reverend Brian Mason as he returns from his sabbatical. So if we could welcome him back. Since 1858, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are most welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And I have a couple of announcements that I would like to highlight today. Today is the first Sunday of the month, and as is our custom, we have a potluck up in the dining hall after the service. Everyone is welcome whether you brought a dish to pass or not. It just, the food seems to multiply, so you are most welcome to come upstairs. We hope to see you there. And there are also flowers in the atrium to deliver to our homebound members. So please take a card with the member's information and a flower to brighten his or her day with a quick visit. Thanks for participating in that. As a member of the board of trustees, we would like to offer a special invitation to all members of the church. As part of our goal setting and budget planning process for this 2023-2024 year, the board is offering the congregation opportunities to discuss where you think we should be focusing our attention and what you see as our priorities for spending for the upcoming year. And we are offering um, some small group sessions, very informal, and these are highlighted in the circuit writer, which is online, and there's also some copies right by the front door if you are leaving today. The first session was today. The second session will be this coming Tuesday night from seven to eight, seven to eight in Yawkey Hall, and then we will be having a session every a Sunday before church from 9 to 10. So it would be great if everyone could come for one of those sessions to um, give us your feedback. We would really appreciate that. And today, as we are, begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Dear friends, <laughs> let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting. The words are printed in the order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now, would you please rise again as you are able 
um, and we will sing our, our beginning hymn, number 347, Gather the Spirit, number 347. please remain standing for our affirmation and doxology. The words you'll find in the bulletin. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. be seated. This morning I want to share with you a story that the RE kids wrote last Sunday to let 
welcome Reverend Brian back and to let him know everything that happened at church while he was away. This is all based on true events, but some parts have been dramatized for your listening pleasure, and I'll let you guess which ones those are. Once upon a time, in a land not too far from here, there was a church whose minister was on sabbatical. And while the minister was away, the RE kids decided to get a zoo. It started with a dog named King. King loved playing in the fort that the RE kids made, but they were lonely when everyone left church on Sundays. So King, the dog, invited their friends to come over. King invited the horse, the fish, the fox, the kitten, the bird, and of course, more puppies to come and join them. The fort wasn't quite big enough for all of these friends, so they made it bigger, and it took up all of RE. And when they were done playing in the fort, they found all sorts of fun games to play at the church. They used the wildflower seed bombs that the RE kids made as soccer balls. They pulled all the children's library books out of upstairs and moved them into Brian's office because they thought it was quite comfy in there. <laughs> they borrowed some bikes and scooters from Place for Us and they rode around the rec room. They made music with the piano and boom whackers. They made marble runs and a Lego tower. They made an obstacle course and jumped in the ball pit and played catch with a beach ball. The puppies even chewed up the RE Kids Covenant. In the end, they ended up making quite a mess. But King the dog remembered that the covenant said, before the puppies chewed it up, that we would care for our space and each other. So King stood up on the throne chair and called everyone together to clean up the space. After it was all clean, the animals decided they liked church so much that they would stay. And they are currently in the vents in Brian's office and have requested that he keeps hay, dog treats, and kitty food in his pockets. And Randy, Randy, they would like a mini TV worked into the budget so they can watch their animal shows on the animal planet. <laughs> they also mentioned Brian should be wary of leaving his shoes laying around after playing the shoe game in RE, because you know how chewy teething puppies can be. And that was our story for today. We're worshiping as a community of all ages, so I invite you to join me in blessing everyone here and everyone online with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of worship. Let there be an offering to sustain and strengthen this place, which is sacred to so many of us, a community of memory and of hope, for we are now the keepers of the dream. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support. <laughs>
I'd like to invite everyone to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. If you generally close your eyes when you pray, go ahead and close them now. Start by putting your feet on the ground. Take a deep breath and push it down into your stomach. Notice your heart. The weight on your shoulders. Let us pray. On this happy day of reunion, we pray for a world in which no child goes hungry or unloved, in which every person is treated with respect and compassion, and all who are in need receive what they need. We pray for a world where justice and peace are as ordinary as sunshine, where love and respect are common as grass, where the spirit of life shines forth in every gesture. We ask comfort for all who mourn, healing to all who are sick, guidance for the hands and hearts of all who do the work of repair. We pray for all who have asked us to pray. We pray for our own needs. We pray for this church. We pray for our community. We pray for the harm we've caused and the harm we never intended. We pray for those who have nothing to give, those who show up after the massacre to help, and those who need a breather. We pray for those of us who know a thing or two about second chances. We pray for addicts and those in recovery, for people harmed by addiction and those who help repair it. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 18 in the Gray Book. What wondrous love.
The poem I selected for this morning is entitled Words by the Kentucky poet Wendell Berry. And the poet writes, What is one to make of a life given to putting things into words, saying them, and writing them down? Is there a world beyond words? There is, but don't start. Don't go on about the tree unqualified, standing in light that shines to time's end beyond its summoning name. Don't praise the preachless starlight, the unspeakable dawn. Just stop. Well, we can stop for a while if we try hard enough, if we're lucky. We can sit still, keep silent, let the Phoebe, the sycamore, the river, the stone call themselves by whatever they call themselves, their own sounds, their own silence, and thus may know for a moment the nearness of the world, its vastness, its vast variousness, far and near, which only silence knows. And then we call all things by name, out of the silence again to be with us, or die of namelessness. Thus ends our reading. Jess, your story reminded, of John, reminded me of John Favel, for those of you who've been around for a while. I saw his, his widow, Sharon, earlier this morning. Towards the end of John's life, I'd go visit him at the nursing home where he was, and John had dementia, and sometimes conversation would be difficult. And what John and I loved to do is we would watch Animal Planet episodes on rerun over and over and over again. And I remember one time it was like the animal cops or whatever, you know, the people like bust in a house to break up a dog ring or something like that. And John was sitting there next to me. He was like, I just love this episode. I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> it's, it's really a joy to be in this sanctuary with all of you again, worshiping. The last four months that I've been on sabbatical, they've been very clarifying and refreshing. And I took the opportunity seriously, maybe a little too seriously at times, but I, I won't lie. I relaxed a little bit too 
I took in a Red Sox game at Fenway, and I don't apologize about it. I perfected a few bread recipes that turned out pretty well, if I say so myself, and I cooked some pretty good dinners. But I'll have you know, I never skipped church, not even once, so I don't know what your excuses are, but I went every single Sunday, and sometimes three and four days a week. But before I move on, I want to just take a moment to thank the people who made my sabbatical possible, and foremost, the people who made my sabbatical possible was all of you. Your prayers for me, that you sent me an email or you text me, uh, your well wishes were really a great source of support, and your generosity with me, with my time and with your time, is, is very humbling. I also want to thank the staff for their dedication, Jess and Donica and Margaret. Carolyn, I don't know where you are. Thank you for your dedication. I want to thank the Reverend Suzanne Vizilchek for her ministry here among us. I want to thank the committee chairs who I see, some of them are here present, for continuing your work on behalf of this congregation. And I want to thank the Board of Trustees for their ongoing and steady leadership. Just a few people I want to mention specifically, and that's Board President Cheryl Hemp, Vice President Jeff Lee, and Treasurer Randy Jefferson for picking up the extra administrative responsibilities of mine and doing them so well while I was gone. And lastly, I want to thank my, my wife Sarah and my daughter Ellie. I think, at least for me, they are the home that I return to no matter where I go. Now, I've never come back from sabbatical before, so I asked around about what a pastor is supposed to do. And everyone, including a few members of the staff, said, Brian, you talk about what you did, which is what I'm going to do at least in part. I'm going to do it only in part because over the years I've grown just a little bit uncomfortable with autobiographical sermons, mainly because I'm so very boring. <laughs> so this sermon a little bit moves me out of my comfort zone, but I promise to you my commitment is that I'm going to draw the circle just a little bit wide so that you don't feel like this sermon is all about me. This sermon's going to be about you. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going to try to convince you that the world never stops asking things of you. I'm going to try to convince you this morning that you have gifts to give, even if by that all it means is that you're just alive. And that your living ripples outward into the world, sometimes in ways you see, and sometimes in ways you don't. And then I'm going to try to convince you that we need you. And then I'm going to try and convince you that you need us. Everybody know where we're going? You've seen the heads, you've seen the guideposts, we know where we're going. So first off, sabbaticals are encouraged for several reasons, and I'll list just a few of them. For starters, sabbaticals do a good job of cutting someone down to size. What they do is they reminded this pastor that the church has got on for 2,000 plus years without me specifically just fine, and it will go on doing so. That said, sabbaticals remind congregations that they need pastors in order to thrive, and that churches have callings too. James Luther Adams, a wonderful Unitarian theologian, he said that there is first the priesthood of all believers, but then he added a spin on it. He said there is also the prophethood of all believers. Now I'm going to put that another way. Action without belief is as meaningless as belief without action. Did you follow that? Action without belief is meaningless. So sabbaticals remind us of our human calling, and they also remind us of our limitations. Our bodies are very weak without rest. Our relationships fall apart without mending. Our minds get dusty without cleaning out the clutter, and souls grow weary without prayer and contemplation. And of course, not everybody gets an opportunity like I did. I'm very lucky. But everyone can at some point in every day, retreat into that citadel of your mind and think for a moment. 
But the thing is, is that insight matters very little if you do nothing with it. The addict must act on his awareness in order to get sober. The distant lover must walk through the awareness of the pain she's caused to ask forgiveness and for a chance to repair. All of this kind of reminds me of something my grandmother said to me on her deathbed. I've talked about my grandma a few times from this pulpit, and she was a fiery woman. But what she said to me on my deathbed is she said, Son, it's never too late to reorder your life. And so with this in mind, I've been reading Henry David Thoreau's journals that he wrote when he was out there in the Walden Woods. And I came across an entry of his on the nature of human life. And so what Thoreau said is that the world is always in flux. And so because of this, Thoreau said that we must strive to let seasons rule us. You must live in the present, he said. You have to launch yourself on every wave. You have to find your eternity in each moment. And in order to do that, you have to do what you love. And you have to let nothing come between you and the light. And so Thoreau's words reminded me of something else about my grandma. My grandma in her kitchen, do you guys remember when it was cool to hang like uh, those round things where people would stitch phrases into them? What is that called? Crochet or something? Anyways, my grandma had these things hanging on, hanging on her wall. And the one that my grandma had hanging in her kitchen, it, it was of her favorite Bible verse. And you all know this verse. It goes like this. Consider the lilies. Look at the birds of the air. Today's trouble is enough for today. And so these insights were penned more than 2,000 years apart, but what St. Matthew and Thoreau's teachings do is the very same thing. What they're saying to us is this, to live your life in service to the future is futile. Now, it's not that planning is pointless. It's that the only life you're guaranteed is the life that's unfolding right under your nose. There's this old saying that goes like this, sin is when someone refuses to change even when they know they're causing pain, and that's to themselves or to someone else. Now, I can't speak for you, but I've been in ministry now for more than a decade, if you can believe it, and most of those years standing right up here. I've also been in hospitals and universities and other churches. And what I can tell you is on some level, just admit it, we're all just sort of making it up like we know what we're doing when really we're just making it up as we go along as if we can just predict the future. I'm going to give you a warning. If anyone ever tells you that they have their stuff together, punch them in the throat and run in the other direction. Humility is, is just so scarce these days, but the thing is, is humility is the key to our survival. It's our willingness to admit wrongdoing, to change, the desire to serve others, the gifting of oneself to a cause or community, the resolve to live within limits that separates the wheat from the chaff. I've lived a while, I went to Cambridge University on my sabbatical. I went to Harvard University. And what I can tell you is that smart people are a dime a dozen. What's rare is wisdom. And I don't count myself among the wise just because I stand up here 10 feet above contradiction. But I am wise enough to know that I am not beyond reproach. It's important to realize that your worth doesn't come from your wits or even your acts of service. Because your life is sacred, and it's sacred because life is sacred. And everything that we should, everything we do should be in response to this reality, that life is a gift, love is a gift, grace is a gift. Now you may have thoughts about where all of that comes from, but the fact is, none of you created life. None of you created love. None of you created grace. 
The best parts of life don't come from you because they come from us. This is the kind of stuff I meditated on during sabbatical or at least tried to. But in order to do this, I had to clear out a lot of clutter in my head. Just nod if your head ever gets filled with clutter. Everybody is nodding their head. So in order to clear out the clutter, I decided to spend 33 days walking from western France to the coast of Spain. I did this because I wanted to reignite my love for the church. And so I visited chapels and cathedrals throughout Europe. I sang with choirs. I broke bread at their altars. And I let myself be ministered to by their faithful witness. And I also wanted to learn more about this church and learn why sometimes we tend to get stuck on this hamster wheel of shame and blame. And why it seems to me sometimes we almost appear uncomfortable with the very mission we claim, but also why people have been coming to this church as a source of spiritual nurturance for more than 165 years. And so what I did is I spent time in the Unitarian and Universalist archives at Harvard. And finally, I wanted to recommit to the thing Thoreau and St. Matthew are talking about, the life happening right under my nose, my family, my friends, my faith. And so I cut back on all those sugary dopamine hits that satisfy me temporarily in order to have an appetite to feast on the things that really nourish me for the long haul. In other words, I made it a point to start practicing what I preach. Now, let me get this out of the way. Walking the Camino isn't a unique thing to do. I don't think it makes me special. Thousands and thousands of people walk it each and every year. But I just want you to know, if you decide to walk the Camino in winter, you should know that every Spanish person and every French person you come across will call you crazy to your face. Here's just a bit of comparison. In spring and summer, about 500 people a day say that set out from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in, in, in peak season in France. And in winter, the average number is like zero. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. If this walk is something you want to do, you can do it. I promise you, if you want to do it, you can do it. But if you do it in winter, bring extra socks. That's all I'm going to tell you. In winter, it won't be that social experience you see in the photos or you see in that movie with Martin Sheen. It won't be that kind of a social experience. You will definitely encounter other pilgrims, but you will only encounter a few. But for me, winter was the best time to do it because what I was after was a sustained period of time to commune with the spirit of life. That's what I was going for. But I was never alone for that long. I'll tell you just a few experiences that are sort of imprinted in my imagination. On the very first night, when I walked into this wonderfully snow-filled town, I guess you call it, I was invited into the basement of this many thousands of year old church by this monk, all of us pilgrims gathered down there, and we went into this very ancient room, and we decided to just sing Amazing Grace in a crypt 1,700 years old. It was amazing. And among those pilgrims that I was singing with was this atheist lawyer from the Netherlands. He was the most obnoxious man on planet Earth, and of course, he walked with me. So anyways, here I am with this very obnoxious man from the Netherlands, and he says, Brian, I am walking to lose weight and to get sober. But every time I saw this guy for the next month, he was drunk or hungover or on his way to a Michelin star restaurant, and I said, something is wrong with this picture. <laughs> Over the course of this time, I would awake to the sound of roosters and shepherds. One time I woke up to the most disgusting sound of the loudest lovemaking I have ever heard in my entire life. I also woke up one morning to a cat very violently combing my hair. Cats in Europe. None of you warned me. Why didn't you tell me there would be cats everywhere I went? So I walked on these roads paved by Romans. They've carried pilgrims for 1,500 years. And more than once, I just felt so much gratitude for this church. 
at various points, I just thought, what a blessing. I met some other pilgrims. I'll tell you about a few more that I met. I met this woman who was out there after this wretched divorce, or what sounded like a wretched divorce. She lost her home. She lost custody of her only child. And then four months after all that, her mom died. And then four days after that, her dad died. I met another man who told me that he felt like vanity was ruining his life, that he was nearly 50 years old and he had never fallen in love, never had a true friend. I met a woman whose lover of 35 years told her on Christmas morning, he said, I haven't loved you for more than a decade and I've got an apartment across town. I met a concert cellist who fell down and broke her hand and was never able to play the cello again. And so she wanted to walk and think about it. And I met this very striking, tall Scandinavian fellow who said, I just wanted to take a walk. (laughs) In other words, I met people just like us. And I went to church almost every day. If the church was open, I went. I even got pooped on by a bird one time on the way to church. I was held hostage by a cab driver. That's a very long story. Make sure your debit card works is all I'm going to tell you. I also got laughed at by about 25 kids as I tripped coming out of church one morning. And I got sunburnt on the palms of my hands. Did you know you can get sunburnt on the palms of your hands? Anyways, I'd summarize my experience like this. Over the course of these 33 days, I felt like I was walking deeper into the heart of things, into the hows and whys of who I am, but also the question of whose I am. I listened to all those negative voices inside of me rather than pushing them away. The same voices I know that live in some of you. And I was relieved every single day of the lie of self-sufficiency. Every time I had to go to a new town and say, I'm hungry, I need a place to sleep. I got a bit of clarity but I didn't get as much clarity as I had sort of hoped for. But that's where the importance of letting go and allowing a sabbatical to live in you, even when the fun's all over. You see, knowledge is meaningless unless you do something with it. And so after my time on the Camino, I went to England and I toured the cathedrals in order to get a better understanding of the Puritan project that led to the birth of Unitarianism and Universalism, two branches of Christianity that, by my estimation, are really on the verge of extinction, as 21st century Unitarian Universalism really claims projects quite unlike we've done in the past. Now, Americans, we like to think that New England is old. Have you ever been to Boston, some of you? Right? It looks old. It smells weird. But when you go to England or you go to Europe, in my experiences, Europeans and Britons, they will disabuse you of this assumption every chance they get. I had this conversation with a lady in Cambridge, and she said, do you realize that our churches and colleges were built when the story of the Buddha's life was first translated into Greek by St. John of Damascus? I said, no, I had no idea about that. She said, do you realize that our churches and colleges were built when Constantine still ruled the Byzantine Empire, when the Babylonian Empire was still around, when the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were still warring with one another? Our colleges were built when the entire global population was roughly the size of the United States alone today. And so when you tour British cathedrals, what I was looking for is that destructive impulse that is inherent in our spiritual ancestry. So in case you forgot, what scholars do is they link Unitarian Universalists to a group known as, $100 anybody who knows it, I'll keep my money, the Radical Reformation. That's what scholars link us to, the Radical Reformationists. Our zeal to purify the church according to our own thoughts It knew very few limits. Our ancient spiritual ancestors, here's just a few of the things that they did. We killed priests and monks. 
We tore down Catholic statues, we torched artifacts, we whitewashed walls, we imprisoned heretics, and we did this all in order to do a thing that I learned in seminary is called to hymnatize the eschaton. What we were trying to do was expedite God's earthly return. It didn't work out very well for us, but we just kept on. We thought maybe just another church we torch will happen. Now, you, one might assume that our zeal is what holds the key to our survival. But what you won't find is where, is agreement, rather, about where we should direct that zeal. And so late on Ash Wednesday this year, I worshipped at King's College Chapel in Cambridge, home to the most famous choir on planet Earth, I think. And people from all over the world... I assume atheists and theists alike, we stood in line for half an hour to get inside this chapel. And then we stood in line again for another half an hour to have a priest smear ashes on our forehead and say, you are dust. And then we broke bread, then we drank wine, and then all of us filed out one after another. And we walked bleary-eyed back home in the dark, wondering what to make of it all. And so in an era of overhyped church decline, consumerism, meism, vanity, selfishness, voidism, scapegoating, half-truths, and whole lies, here's what I want you to consider. The physical act of putting on your shoes, getting out the door, and sitting inside of a church is as countercultural today as it once was to call yourself a hippie or a punk rocker. You are a radical if you go to church, but I'm digressing. And so when I got home from England, I called these researchers at Harvard University, and I said, I'm coming for you, and they said, come on. And I said, I want to work with you to locate every single thing you have about the first Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. And as luck would have it, together we were able to un cover more than a dozen boxes of material dating all the way back to the mid-1850s. I found Civil War-era letters from former pastors and parishioners. I found sermons and lectures and newsletters. Y'all, I know where every skeleton is buried. I know everything, okay? <laughs> and what these letters and what these documents show is that Wausau's Universalists, they were a determined and faithful group of people. We are equal parts intention and luck. The story of this church has moments of tragedy and decline and deception, but it also has moments of joy and growth and companionship. The story of the church, an institution I have given more than a decade of my life serving, in my opinion, is one of the greatest human stories ever told. In one of Franz Kafka's books, he writes that the meaning of life is that it stops. The meaning of life is that it stops. The church takes this fact more seriously than any other enterprise humankind has created. And of course, life can be a joy. And in those moments, at least in my experience, whenever you're feeling joy, it's so easy to look around and see meaning in every little thing. But life can be hell, too. And in those moments, that's when the church is at its best. Because when life is hell, what the church does is it stubbornly looks at you and it says that if you have to walk through hell, don't leave empty-handed. And so the church's message is always urgent because we understand that life is brief, marvelously brief, if you compare it to rocks, or a sequoia. Our ancestors in this church, they would fight wars, they would spill blood, they would brave unknown seas, and they would settle on the very, very, very cold banks of the Wausau, Wisconsin River because they had a little bit of zeal to tell this story. And here's the story. All of us commit sins, and the sins we commit are sins of commission and sins of omission. As the old prayer book says, we do the things we ought not, and we do, or rather, we don't do the things we ought. 
And it's this fragility, this tendency to miss the mark, it's this fragility that unites us. But the church says is it's our weakness, not our strength. It's our weakness that binds us together. It's in those moments of brokenness when we can best see ourselves in the eyes of someone else. The next time you read an announcement from this church that I tell you another member has died, I want you to pay close attention and see that that's when this church springs into action. Two dozen people will drop every single thing that they're doing and they will rush out that door to be with someone in time of need. The project of person or to be with someone in time of need. The project of personhood is the church's project to recognize that life and death, that's what binds us together. There is no you without us. There is no us without you. And everyone knows this is true, but we lose sight of it from time to time because we try to live as though Ralph Waldo Emerson's idea of self-reliance is possible. It's not. He was wrong. Self-reliance is not possible. If you need proof of humankind's tendency to want to make self-reliance possible, just consider these two facts. In 2019, Americans spent more than $10 billion on self-help. This year, economists estimate that we will spend $14 billion on self-help. But what does the research also tell us? That we hardly ever open the apps we buy that will improve us. We don't actually intend the classes we enroll in. And as much as we'd like to think that we have evolved our thinking beyond our ancestors, let's not forget that we still like to label others using self-serving terms. We like to tell versions of stories that suit our interests. Some of us think that it is our personal life's purpose to tear down what we see as other people's altars and statues without ever realizing that what we're doing is we are erecting new ones dedicated to our own thinking. If you want to know how this worked out, I have a wonderful book to recommend to you. It's called SPQR by Mary Beard, the world's foremost classicist. Just read the history of Rome if you want to see how well it works out when people start deifying themselves. So in the Hebrew scriptures, There's this lovely story with a main character that starts in the land of Uz, and the main character is named Job. He's perfect, he's blameless, he's upright, he enjoys telling everyone just how perfect and blameless and upright he is. He drives a Subaru or a Prius, okay? He shops at Downtown Grocery, he subscribes to The New Yorker, He subscribes to the Atlantic, okay? Job is perfect and upright and blameless. You've met him, just look in the mirror. Anyways, (laughs) what's the whole point and purpose of the story of Job? I'm gonna paraphrase a lot of Hebrew for you, but I know Hebrew, so trust me. Here's what the whole point and purpose of Job is. Get over yourself, full stop. Read the whole book, get over yourself. If everyone was perfect, there would be no need for a thing called democracy. If the world was perfect, there would would be no need for the Chicago Cubs. If the world was perfect, there would be no need for church. If the world was perfect, we would all just be St. Louis Cardinals fans. Let's admit it, right? Like, that's how it goes. Do not. No one in the receiving line remind me how bad my team is doing. None of you are allowed to tell me about that. The next time you catch yourself being a knucklehead, you should stop and say, hallelujah. You should shout it because what that means is that shadows guarantee the presence of light. Brokenness invites repair. Death is defeated by the miracle of life. And it's this dancing on a knife's edge that causes us to want to try again. That's what causes us to want to give someone a second chance, to walk for a month in winter in a foreign land, to tear down idols and rebuild them. It's what gets us to throw off the warm sheets on a cold morning and sit in the pews. 
No, I'm going to do something heretical. I'm going to quote John Calvin to a group of Unitarian Universalists in just a moment. Don't kill the messenger. Just listen to this, okay? The reformer John Calvin, this is one of the lovely things about his theology that we miss. The reformer John Calvin said in the Institutes, what he said is this. He said, the reason why there are thousands of trees and flowers and birds and hair colors and shapes and sizes of people is what? It's because it was made for our delight. Thoreau arrived at the very same conclusion, which means that the invitation to the banquet of creation is for theists and for atheists alike. And so a handful of years after Calvin died, his greatest interpreter, a man by the name of Karl Barth, he added a slight twist to Calvin's idea. What Barth said is that what sets humankind apart from the rest of nature is that we have been given the greatest gift of all, the awareness of time. And with this awareness, we get to decide how to spend it. But it's not just how we spend our time. It's how we give this time to others. For me, the greatest gift of sabbatical was the gratitude. Gratitude that I married someone who doesn't want to turn off the lights whenever she catches a glimpse of my naked and middle-aged body. (laughs) Gratitude for a child that delights my days, for friends who make me laugh and call me out and then call me back in, for parents who showed me not only how to forgive, but how to accept it, for two legs that carried me hundreds of miles across three countries and right back home to this congregation, gratitude that I never have to carry the mantle of faith alone. So on sabbatical, I fell in love with a poem. It's called Love After Love, and it's by the St. Lucian poet Derek Walcott. I'm going to read it for you. The poet writes, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door and your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, Sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. And so give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, peel your image from the mirror and sit Feast on your life. Feast on your life, dear friends. Greet yourself at arriving at the eternity of every moment and give your life away. Amen. I invite you to rise in spirit or body and join in singing our closing hymn number 201, Glory, Glory, Hallelujah.
As a reminder, everyone is invited to join us upstairs in the fellowship hall for coffee and fellowship and a potluck lunch. But if I can, and if you'll receive this blessing, I invite you to reach out and take the hand of the person you came with, or if you're comfortable, someone nearby. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. Thank you.